The world of ministry to teenagers can offer a full range of emotion, interesting challenges, rewarding victories, and discouraging difficulty. It is important to remember that the work we do with students is vital. It is good to be reminded that what you do matters and is appreciated. We hope that the time you spend here will encourage you and equip you to hit the mark in life and ministry. Welcome to the Scope Host Podcast, impacting youth ministry in Oklahoma and beyond. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Scope Host Podcast. This is Todd Sanders. And in this week's episode, we're listening to the third general session of our Oklahoma Youth Ministry Forum 2018, where Matt Robertson, pastor of the Met Church in Houston, talks about developing a discipleship culture. Are you guys doing this afternoon or tonight, I guess? Tonight. It's tonight. Can we tell the band thanks for just leading us to the throne? That's an amazing job, guys. Thank you. I love that song. It says it's all because of his love that our soul will live. And uh, I know for several of you, this is probably a little bit of an oddity because you've known me as a worship leader for the past several years. Uh, But my story has been very unique. Um, I moved to Houston in January of 2011 and accepted a job as a worship pastor of a church called The Met, Metropolitan Baptist Church, effectively known as The Met in Houston. And I was there uh, for about three years as a worship leader. We uh, we launched a second location uh, there in the northwest uh, Houston area, Cyprus. And so I became a campus pastor in our main location. But then we had a real tough, trying time that happened in the life of our church. Our senior pastor had a um, kind of an indiscretion, uh, and we'll just leave it at that. And um, we went through about an 18-month stint without a leader at all. And so myself, three others of us that were on staff, began to take some of the teaching, preaching responsibilities. I was still uh, a campus pastor, so I was managing the staff, and then occasionally leading worship. And I've never felt more lost in my life, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't even know what I'm doing today. I'm just going to go to go to work and see what happens. And it was through that period of time that God began to really uh, stir something in me that he was calling me to a new chapter in my life. And so uh, we had uh, a group of elders who were looking at the search process. They had actually used a search firm. I didn't even know there were such things as Christian headhunters out there. Uh, But they used a search firm, and they were looking all over the country and trying to find folks. And it was in that moment that the Lord spoke to Jennifer and I said, hey, you know, I think that I'm actually, I want you to consider something, Matt. I'm calling you to lead this church. I'll never forget, I'll never forget being spoken to the Lord through the book of Exodus and knowing that God was calling me to a new season of life, a new season of ministry. So I went in, I met with our elders, I said, hey, um, this is what God's doing in us. And I remember the shock in their faces. And yet they didn't resist in the moment. They were like, you know, um, this isn't the first time that this has come up at our table, but it's interesting that you're bringing it to us. Because they had felt something similar and they had been praying that God would make it clear to them. And here I come walking in and it was just one of those moments. And so they did something which was super weird. After five years of being on staff, they asked me to put my resume in the hat. And uh, I've, I've traveled with my friend Tom. Tom waved everybody. Tom's here with me from Houston. And I remember where he was asking me because he didn't really know this full story. You and your wife Millie had joined just a couple years ago. So this was all news to him. <laughs> and I remember sitting there like, what? resume, like I've been here for five years. You, you know what you're getting and what, and what you're not getting. And um, they said, no, we think just in the midst of where we're at right now. And so I put my resume and cleaned it up and tried to figure it out and took it to some friends who were better at that stuff than me. And I sent my resume through the process. And a long story short, about eight months after I put my resume in, 
the church voted and affirmed me as the lead pastor of the Met Church. And so I walked into a situation, I didn't, I've never been a senior pastor before, having no idea what being a senior pastor looked like. I knew that I had worked for some senior pastors that I really loved, and I knew I'd worked for some others that I'd rather not work for anymore. Can I get any amens amongst my youth pastors in here? Come on, boys, let's go. Ladies, you with me? And I knew that I wanted to create an environment in leadership where each and every person was valued on my staff, but also where they understood that they're not here to simply do something for me or for these people, but that God wanted to do something for them. And that's where this whole idea of discipleship and intentional disciple-making really kind of crossed paths with my personal story. Now, I will tell you, I've made a ton of blunders uh, already in my first two years. Todd asked the question, have you ever like, heard a pastor slip up from stage? Anybody ever done that, youth pastors, when you're speaking? Here was my prized possession. We had a group of men that every third Saturday, they would come up to the church, and they would um, eat breakfast together, they would pray and then they would go out into the community and they would like, you know, fix fences and mow yards for, for widows who couldn't do this stuff on their own. And I just was so proud of them living out their faith. I was like, that is cool. And it grew from 10 guys to well over 75 people at this particular juncture. I thought, man, that's amazing. And so I decided what I wanted to do one Sunday was I wanted to, I wanted to praise them publicly. And so I said, hey, if you're in that group, I want you to stand up. And they stood up. I said, if you were here yesterday at our, our Helping Hands every third Saturday, I said, I just want to tell you what these people do. I said, each and every third Saturday of every month, they get up here, and they cook breakfast for each other, and they pray, and they have like a, a spreadsheet, and it tells them where they're going to go, what they're going to do, and they go out, and they meet the physical needs of widows. And I couldn't take it back. <laughs> it was in that moment I realized, I don't think I'm cut out for this. But God has been really gracious, and I've really enjoyed uh, what I'm doing, and I'm learning a lot. And I know that you come in here tonight probably for a respite. You, you're coming for kind of a retreat. Some of you are coming. Maybe you want to take something away. Maybe you just want to get out of your situation. Okay? I don't know. I know from each and every I know several of you personally haven't done so many uh, weeks of False Creek and events at your churches and, and feel like there's brotherhood and sisterhood with many of you. I've been to college with some of you that are sitting in this room. Jesse's in here who actually was a student in my student ministry when I was a student pastor at First Baptist Marlowe and is now a student pastor himself. Proud of you. And I think it's just amazing that I, there's a sense of camaraderie and family, but here's what I want you to know tonight. I believe that God has something for you as it pertains to this whole elusive thing called discipleship and disciple making. It's a word that I've heard my entire life, but I lacked clarity and focus in what it really meant to make a disciple. Anybody with me in that tonight? I'm the only one that lacked focus and clarity. Okay, good. Thanks for your bravery. I'll just talk to you. Okay, that's awesome. And it was in this, I, came, I, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a Southern Baptist preacher, fire and brimstone. I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. Do I have any, uh, any Chicago fans? No. Go Cubs? After 108 years, we did it. We did it. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. Shout out. But I, and by the way, this is just a, a segue here. How many you know what the GOAT is, right? Like the greatest of all time. You know what I'm talking about? I grew up in an era where I knew that Chicago sports, I was spoiled, as Tom would tell me. I'm spoiled. Okay? I grew up in Chicago when the 85 Bears won the Super Bowl. 
Da Bears. Ditka. Da Bears, right? And I still have a little Chicago slang in me that's not appropriate for Youth Pastors Forum. But I remember arguing with people about the greatest of all time. Like, who's the greatest of all time? Walter Payton? Oklahoma State fans? Barry Sanders? See, I just offended somebody. I know. I think of, and I wrote a couple down. So let me ask you something. Um, Joe Montana? Or now Tom Brady? Who, who, Joe Montana, let me see your hands. Let's see, greatest of all time. Yep, Tom Brady. Who hates both of those men for some weird reason? Okay, fine, that's fine. The most, the most argued one, though, is LeBron James or Michael Jordan. And let's just face it, I was there for all six championships as a 12-year-old boy. LeBron James can suck it. Michael Jordan's where it's at. Yeah, tweet that, Todd, please. And when the University of Oklahoma came out with their new swag, and it had the jump man on the lapel, and it had the University of Oklahoma, this friend of mine bought me, we're going to the game tomorrow night, he bought me a sweatshirt and a hoodie, and I felt like my entire life was encapsulated in that one time. I was like, the jump man, the University of Oklahoma, I can wear this shirt every day of my life and feel happy. But here's what I want you to know. Do we all believe tonight that Jesus Christ was the greatest disciple maker of all time? Is it even arguable that there's anyone that's ever been better? There's no way that you could argue that anyone else was better. Why? Because 2,000 plus years later, we're sitting in a room and we're talking about how he did it and what he did. With 12 people, and even in his circle, one of them bailed. Right? Some of you are like, really? Yeah, go, go read it. You'll figure it out. And in that particular moment, something happened to me. I thought, you know what, if we modeled a disciple-making culture after the greatest of all time, there should probably be success attached to it somewhere. Now, here's the difficulty. I grew up in a situation where I knew what the word disciple meant, but I didn't necessarily know how to make one. If you're writing anything down tonight, and I've got just a few minutes with you, here's what I want to ask you. If Jesus is the greatest of all time, how is it that I can pattern my ministry and the people that God has called me to shepherd, how can I set them up in the same course that Jesus set those 12 men up? Because you know that if you can get behind that, you're going to have roughly anywhere from four to six years with a group of students, which is more than he had with his. And if in that span of time, you can set them on a trajectory that will change their life forever and that will alter the face of the kingdom, do you think that you would be down for that? I think that's probably why most of you gave your life to student ministry. Now, I'm not going to talk tonight about giving your life to student ministry. I want to tell you something. I served as a student pastor, like I said, for four and a half years. I think it's one of the most rich callings that there is in the local church. I think what you're doing is unbelievable. Students are not the future of the church. They're the church now. You guys have heard that before. What you're doing is you're investing your lives, you're getting paid peanuts to effectively change the life of someone. And each and every day, every game you attend, every sermon that you preach, every night in the hospital you spend, every mission trip that you take, each and everything that you do, I think that you have the opportunity to be one of the most intentional leaders on the face of the planet. 
But you've got to commit that, number one, I'm going to have a strategy for this. I'm going to know what I'm doing. So I don't want to talk in ethereal things. I want to give you some practical things about disciple making. This is a part of our culture at the Met Church in Houston, Texas. And I just want to bestow this upon you. If you, don't, if you want to like just get on Instagram, then you do that. But if you're interested in having an intentional strategy for making disciples, I want to talk tonight about biscuits, about lenses, and about aircraft carriers. The first thing is a biscuit. My mother was a Southern Belle. She was, she was raised in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Anybody? That's what I'm talking about. Okie from Muskogee. That's my mama. My mom knows how to make homemade biscuits. And every morning as a child, every morning, my mom would have biscuits, bacon, and eggs before I went to breakfast. I mean, look at me. It's obvious, okay? And I loved my mom's biscuits so much so that I wanted to learn how to make what my mom made. And I remember after I was married, newly married, I said, Mom, I want to make biscuits. My wife doesn't do this thing. I remember that conversation too. (sighs) It didn't go well, all right? And I said, hey, uh, Mom, I called her, Mom, yeah, how how do you make uh, your biscuits? She's like, son, I don't know. so you don't have a recipe? No, I don't have a recipe. I just, I grab some flour and I kind of put some, you know, shortening in there and maybe some salt and a pinch of this and a pinch of that. And depending on what the, I'm like, mom, a pinch is not a measuring unit. Like I need some help. She said, Matt, I, I've made them for 40 years. I don't know how to make them. I just know how to make them. I said, you don't make any sense. And I'm mad at you. <laughs> no. And I remember saying, I, and I tried a few, and I made some that looked more like hockey pucks, and you couldn't, like, even coffee wouldn't soften them up, and those were terrible. I made some other, others that would never actually bake. You put something in the oven for 20 minutes, and it never changes form, don't eat it. It's not a good idea. <laughs> and in this moment, I remember being like, Mom, here's what I need you to do. I need you to just intentionally write some things down so that I can kind of recreate what it is that you're recreating. I want to know what it is that you're making here. She said, okay. And so she said it took her three batches before the recipe really worked because she just was kind of a feel cook, you know, like whatever. I finally got the recipe, and I tried it, and behold, the biscuits emerged. I have a 14-year-old daughter who can make them from scratch to this day because of that recipe. You see, once you know what you're making, it's a lot easier to make it, isn't it? So the first thing I want us to understand tonight about disciple making is this. We all have heard, Todd alluded to it, Ed alluded to it, the call. There is a call to make disciples. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I will be with you always till the very end of the age. It is a command that Jesus Christ gave, not just to those, but to all. There's a call to making disciples, but what in the world is it? If you have a Bible, Bible app, whatever you're using tonight, I want you to turn to Matthew 4. It's actually a real similar story to the one that Ed alluded to this morning, but it's out of the book of Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 18 and following. If you got it, say, I got it. I'm going to wait for you then. I hear pages. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, that's better. Here we go. Ready? Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Does this sound familiar from this morning? And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from shore, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I loved what Ed said this morning when he said there's casting nets and mending nets. I thought that was so good. Here's what I want to tell you tonight. When you want to know what a disciple is, the definition of making a disciple is actually in the invitation of Jesus Christ. The definition is in the invitation. Here's what he says. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So here's the three things that we use at the Met for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The first is this, come, follow me. A disciple is someone who has been introduced to and knows and has given their life to follow Jesus Christ. That's why what Ed said is so integral this morning. You cannot separate discipleship from evangelism. You can't do it. They can't just follow Jesus with their life but never surrender their life to Jesus. Does that make sense? A disciple is someone who knows and is following Christ. So that means you and I have to take every opportunity to understand the biscuit recipe when it comes to making a disciple Our students need to be given every opportunity to be introduced to this amazing, amazing truth that Jesus Christ died to save them from their sins, to rescue their life so that they could live a life of purpose and an eternal presence with him. Don't you believe that? Some of you, if you gave your life to Christ at this camp, could you raise your hand? Check this out. Yeah. You know how intentional? I've served in some capacity in this camp for the last 11 summers. There is no place on the planet that is more intentional about introducing people to Jesus Christ in their teenage years than this camp. There's not a place on the planet. And you're so familiar with it, I just want to kind of bring it back up. A disciple is someone who knows and follows Christ. If you're not giving your students opportunities to be introduced to Christ or for them to bring their, ki- their, their friends to be introduced to Jesus, you would at least do, do well with starting there, right? Disciple is someone who knows and follows Christ. Second thing, he says, come follow me. And then he says, I will make you. The second part of this definition is really interesting because it implies something. It implies that they're not going to take a class and they're not going to get a ribbon and they're not going to get some program thing that they get to put on their wall, but they're going to be made over time. The way we say it at the Met is this, a disciple is someone who knows and follows Christ. A disciple is someone who is constantly being changed by Christ. You see, if we're not careful, we'll introduce them to Jesus We'll give them a Bible, we'll tell them to read the book of John, and we'll walk on our way. That's not discipleship, that is spiritual abuse. If I did that to your child, if you birthed a child, and the next step was to sit that child on a couch in front of an OU football game with popcorn and a Dr. Pepper, the CPS would come for your tail. But we do it spiritually all the time. We introduce them to Jesus, but we don't talk to them about what it means to be constantly changed by Christ. We ask them to behave differently, but we don't necessarily teach them what it looks like to change. We just tell them what we expect. Guilty as charged. A disciple is someone who knows and follows Christ. A disciple is someone who is constantly being changed by Christ. And then is a disciple is someone who is committed to the mission of Christ. I will make you what? Fishers of men. As Ed said this morning, we're not just here to make disciples. We're here to make disciples who, say it with me, who make other disciples. 
One of the ways that you can measure success in your students is to understand and know whether they're reproducing, spiritually speaking. If they're not, there's probably a gap in your strategy, and that's okay. The gap is okay. Leaving the gap is not okay. So what do you do with the awareness of it? Okay, Matt, I hear what you're saying. Biscuits, I totally get it. I need to know what I'm making. There's not just a call to make a disciples. There's also a, a method to making disciples. I, can, I don't want to get into a theological discussion around, well, there's all different kinds of methods of making disciples, Matt. Yeah, there's one primary lens, though, that is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture that I think student ministers are actually really good at, but the rest of the church loses, and it's this idea of lenses. One lens. I'm wearing, I'm wearing glasses because I'm, you know, getting older. Can't read my Bible like this anymore. Here's the thing about these lenses. They give me a perspective. They give me clarity. They show me what it is that I'm, they, they, bring, they bring definition to what it is that I'm looking for. Do you know what the lens is of disciple making throughout the entirety of Scripture really is? It's one word. It's a very complex word. Relationship. Say it with me. Relationship. Here's the thing. I was sitting at a conference in Moscow, Idaho. If you know where that is, good for you. I still don't know where it is. It's way up there somewhere. I was sitting at a conference, and a man looked at me and said this. He said, here's the thing. We've divorced the message of Jesus from the method of Jesus, but we still expect the results of Jesus. Let me say it again. We have divorced the message of Jesus from the method of Jesus, but we still expect the results of Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't simply say, hey, guess what, guys? I want to talk to you today. My office hours are from 9.30 to 11. If you guys could each get with my assistant and make a quick appointment. I'd love to pencil you guys in. Judas, you're left out. No, I'm just kidding. That's not really how Jesus rolled, was it? No, Jesus did things like, and I just wrote a few examples here. John chapter 1. Right when the, they're asking this guy that is making all of this crazy, crazy headway in the community because of what he's doing, and they come to him and they're like, Master, where are you staying? Again, Jesus didn't go, I'm at 1903 Sandal Street. You know what he did? Three most powerful words in his disciple-making journey. Come and see. That's what he told him. Come and see. It's as if he knew in the moment that it's not enough to simply listen to my teaching with the 5,000 people or however many people are from me. You're going to have to get right up next to me. You're going to have to be in my life. We're going to have to be in relationship if anything's going to change. We've adopted this philosophy at our church. This is what I tell him, and I would offer, I would offer this to you. Never do ministry alone. Never. Why? Why in the world? Tom, come here. Everybody say hi, Tom. I called Tom about three or four weeks ago when I knew that we were coming to here, and I said, hey, man, uh, just have a seat right here, Tom. I'm going to put you on the spot. Nice shirt. You look good. That's discipleship, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just kidding. Okay. <clears throat> no, here's the thing. I said, Tom, here's what, here's what I want to do. I'm going to be talking about uh, making disciples at this conference that we're doing, and I knew Tom was a huge uh, University of Oklahoma fan. Boomer. I knew it. I knew it was coming. And Tom and his wife had come over to our house for dinner. And I remember sitting there with you, and I was like, hey, man, someday we're going to go to Norman, and we're going to go see a game. And so when I knew I was coming here, I could have said, hey, Tom, 
I know that you work on Thursday and Friday, and I know that uh, you could maybe get off the games not till Saturday night, so that's easy. You could fly up on Saturday, and I'll pick you up at the airport. We're going to go to a game and get back as fast as we can. But if relationship is when discipleship happens, how much relationship do we get yelling boomer sooner at the top of our lungs? Really? So I did something intentional. I said, hey, man, what would it look like if you took two days of vacation? I'll pay for the flight. I want you to come with me. We're going to go have a good time, and I'm gonna, we're going to go to Marlow, Oklahoma. Where's my Marlow people? Okay, what's up, y'all? We're going to go to Marlow. We're going to visit some friends. I stayed at Randy and Danae Brown's house. It was, it was hard. They made me bake biscuits. Okay, anyway, we stayed at their house. You know what Tom did? Tom got to know two of my friends. What do you think about those folks? Awesome people. He thinks they're awesome. We sat there on the hour drive from Marlowe to here. We talked about our experience together. Talked about what, it, like, why do you think it's, why, why are those kinds of people that we like to hang out with? Man, just the grace. And they're, they're amazing folks and they're great hosts. And then we talked about our daughters. You got a 10-year-old daughter. I got a 12 and a 14-year-old daughter. We talked about what does it look like in life? What does spirituality in Bella's life look like? And he began to share with me what God's doing in this little girl's life. You see, I don't get to do that by picking him up and making sure we attend an event together. We got to invest some time together. Come and see. And then he comes to this. He doesn't even know what this is. Tom's not a youth pastor. Tom volunteers and handles all of our young adult small groups at the Met Church, he and his wife. I said, I got the place for you. But Tom, just for a second, we say this all the time, never do ministry alone. Um, And I'm just going to give you the mic for a minute, but tell them the importance of relationship. I mean, you grew up in the church, but now it's different. How is what you're experiencing now different than what you used to experience? So I grew up in a hardcore Baptist church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, anytime the door was open. So anytime the door was open, we were supposed to be there. We did not meet outside of church. We didn't spend time in the hospitals. We didn't do the Saturday with the widows. We didn't uh, do small groups. Um, So since I've been at the Met, I've learned about relationships and being involved in a small group. And instead of going to church, being the church, and that's made a big impact on me spiritually, my wife and I uh, in serving and just growing together spiritually. So would you encourage, uh, what would you encourage them with in terms of inviting relationship, intentional relationship into their ministry? What would would you just tell them? I think you have to do it. You have to spend time with somebody. You can't disciple them if you're not with them one-on-one, getting to know them, getting to know what what makes them tick, uh, what they're going through, what they're experiencing. I mean, you just can't. You can't disciple without spending that one-on-one time with them. You guys say thanks to Tom right here. Tom. There's several other examples of this in Scripture, right? You look at Luke chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, you remember that Martha and Mary opened up their home. What did Jesus do? He stopped in. When it comes to relationship, we can't be in a hurry. If you program your ministry in such a way to where you don't have time to be with students or to be with the leaders who are with the students, you're probably not being as intentional as you could be. Jesus spent a ton of time with his disciples. He stopped and 
hung out and was with him. Even when he stopped in the house, what did he say to Mary and Martha? What was Martha doing? Oh, my gosh, the Savior's coming. The Savior's coming. The Savior's coming. What did Mary do? She just sat at his feet and wept. She was with him. And what did he tell her? He's like, she's done the better thing, Martha. She gets it. Time spent, relationship. John 21, after Jesus has come back from the dead, his disciples were out fishing. What was Jesus doing by the shore as they came in? There was a fire that he had made and he was cooking some fish. Is there anything more relational than a campfire and just sitting there and hanging out? And then I thought for a minute, well, was it only in the life of Jesus? As you look back through Scripture, you'll realize, and I don't have a ton of time to spend on this tonight, but the method for making disciples must be done in relationship. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He gets to man, and what does he say? It's not good for the man to be alone. Well, he wasn't alone. He was with Jesus, he was with God in the garden, perfect union, perfect fellowship, right? He wasn't alone. God knew. God knew even then that companionship was a huge part of his design. Huge part. Even in the Trinity, we see relationship. It's peppered throughout Scripture. You look at the Ten Commandments. If you don't have on the lens of relationship, they don't even make sense. Thou shalt not murder Murder who? Don't bear false witness. What difference does it make if you're not bearing it against someone? Look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience. With who? Relationship is all throughout Scripture. It's the lens by which he has called us even to read his word. As you get into the word this weekend, I would encourage you, do I see intentionality in relationship anywhere in here? I promise you, you'll find it if you're looking for it. And as student pastors, people who are shepherding the hearts of the next generation, I want to encourage you, you can't be in relationship with every one of your students. There's no way. You have a relational capacity, which means that you're going to have to do the best you can at investing in people who can invest in people. You're making disciples. Okay, we're all together, right? So there's a call to make disciples. There's a method to make disciples. That's the biscuits and that's the lens. But there's also a cost to making disciples. Let me talk to you for the last thing tonight about aircraft carriers. Most people view the church as a cruise ship. Let's build the nicest facility. Let's have the best entertainment. I like that preacher. I don't like that one. That one's funny. That one doesn't make me laugh. That one talks too much in other languages. That guy's only about teaching and doesn't like worship. And we just, it's like a smorgasbord. Well, I just, they just don't have enough for my kids, so I'm going to go to somewhere else. We literally treat the church like a cruise ship. We decide where we're going to go. Our people decide where they're going to go based on the amenities that we have and that we provide. And here's the problem. When we're measuring success and metrics are about attendance, then cruise ship mentality rules. Because the more that come and see, the better job that I'm doing. The problem with come and see rather than go and be is that come and see doesn't make anything other than spectators and consumers when God has called us to be contributors. 
And so there is a cost to making disciples, and here it is. We've got to move our mentality from cruise liners, not even to battleships, but to aircraft carriers. You see, a battleship would mean that I can come and I'm going to make sure and give you the right places to hit, and the staff, they're going to do the job. They're going to, they're going to get it all done. You know, They're going to aim the guns in the right direction. They're going to fight the right fights. No, 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 no. We're talking about aircraft carriers where each and every person that God has called you to shepherd is a jet or a helicopter that is on the deck waiting to be sent off. One of the most beautiful pictures you'll ever have as a student pastor is the first time that that young man or that young woman does it on their own. I was talking to this dude right here that I just brought up here. I said, what's one of the most beautiful things that's happened in your your, 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 uh, daughter's spiritual life? And he said, you know what's cool? She's 10 years old. They have the Mustangs as their uh, mascot. They have ponies for Christ." On a, on, a, on a weekday morning. It started with how many people? With eight. His daughter Bella starts reading scripture and investing, inviting people. How many are now? Over 60 people as a 10-year-old. She's 10. She's not a youth pastor. Or is she? You see where I'm going, though. Tom recognized the intentionality means that even a 10-year-old daughter that God has given me is someone I'm supposed to steward. She's a jet on my tanker, and I'm going to send her out. And one day, as the Proverbs tell us, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will what? He will not depart from it. We run to the fires to put him out. Oh, this person's drinking too much. This person's toying around with this. If we were investing our lives rather than just trying to get them to come to our programs, I think we would see a turnaround in our student ministries. There is a call to make disciples. Biscuits. There is a method to making disciples. It's our lens. But there's a cost for making disciples. We're not a cruise ship. We're an aircraft carrier. And God has called each and every one of you to know what you're making, to use relationship to make it, and to send them out so that they can make one on their own. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth, for your word, the way that you come alive in us. You are the greatest of all time. God, what a privilege it is to be in relationship with you and the ability that you've given us to be in relationship with others. God, we don't want to squander it. We want to be the most intentional leaders on the planet. Give us the courage to do so. In Jesus' name. Scoposts and the Scopost Podcast are ministries of the BGCO and made available through the generous gifts of Oklahoma Baptists to the Cooperative Program. Find out more about Oklahoma Youth Ministry at scopepost.org. Thank you.